Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, my guest is a friend and colleague for many years, Richard Quest. Richard Quest is CNN's foremost international business correspondent and the anchor of Quest Means Business, the definitive word on how we earn and spend our money. Based in New York, he is one of the most instantly recognizable members of the CNN team. Additionally, Richard is the host of two of CNN International's signature monthly feature programs, Business Traveler, which covers global business travel trends, issues, and innovations of the travel industry, and Quest's World of Wonder, an immersive program that finds Quest exploring a new destination each month and meeting fascinating people who reveal the heart of their city. Quest also serves as CNN Business's editor-at-large. Richard Quest, welcome to The Caring Economy. Thank you very much. Thank you, yes. Good to be with you. So Richard, it's been a long time. We first met years ago when I was at American Express and you were at BBC and I was pitching traveler's checks and here we are all these years later. It's been wonderful watching your career. But for our listeners who don't necessarily know your whole sort of narrative, could you take one or two minutes and tell us about how you kind of got where you got, where you're born, studied and- So the thumbnail version of Richard Quest, born 1962 in Liverpool in Northwest England, and then lived in Leeds for many years before going to university to study law. Now, I'd done local radio, I'd done hospital radio, I'd done all amateur radio. And my late father used to say, say, the problem with being a journalist is you'll have the best dinner party stories and the smallest car parked outside. So I want to make sure you have a career behind you in case it fails. He said, right, let's go, go, you know, go and do law. And I liked law. I would not have minded being a lawyer, but my first love was always journalism, and particularly broadcast journalism. And so I was very fortunate enough to get an internship, a paid internship, a two-year thing at the BBC, which then took me to New York as the Wall Street correspondent, and then back to London, and then to New York. And so most of my adult life has been spent transatlantic, if you will, I even got a scholarship to a university over here, Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. So this this linkage, this transatlantic linkage has been a core part of my working and personal life. And I will just say one thing, because those who say, well, you don't sound it, you still got a very British accent. Mm. That's working for the BBC. Uh, The editors there would be ruthless (coughs) if you started dropping Americanisms into your scripts. Richard, we don't, we just go to hospital. We don't go to the hospital. Richard, (laughs) you appeal against the decision. Don't appeal the decision. And so, you know, the first whiff of a process, no, it's process. (laughs) So good training, but then you, were you recruited by CNN or how did you go from BBC to CNN? been with the BBC for about 15 years and a friend of mine said one day I was just looking at he said they're looking for anchors and I looked in the newspaper and there it was as far as I know we've never seen an international we've never advertised in a newspaper since in the Guardian and it said CNN looking for anchors and you know there comes a point at, at a certain level where you don't just apply 
Mm. Um, you know the job exists, but you don't mm. just apply out of the cold because all sorts of reasons. You need a, a level of confidentiality about the, uh, the application. You need to know whether or not sure. it's an internal candidate. At a certain level, you, you need more information than that. So I, I made some overtures and I said, would you welcome an, an application from me? And the word came back, yes. Tell him to apply. So I applied, but hurry up. So I applied and I said, I spoke to the boss. I remember very clearly, I said, because by this stage, I was already presenting World Business Report from New York on the BBC and had been for many years. And I said to the man at CNN, Tony Maddox, I said, do you, do you, do you want me to just put together a showreel? And I didn't have a showreel. And he just sort of laughed on the phone and said, no, I think we know who you are. Um, but there was another interesting moment when he rang me up and I've used this trick myself in business. He rang me up and he said, Richard, you will, of course, realise by the nature of this call that we are looking at you very seriously. If you wish to withdraw, now's the time to do it. And no hard feelings for the future. But if you proceed further and then withdraw, having if you're offered, then you will have done yourself damage. And I've always remembered that. I think it's, you know, if you're just doing it to get the numbers up somewhere else, then it's not worth it. And I've always remembered that because yeah. as another boss once yeah. said to me, employing staff is the single most important thing we do. At CNN, I, I used to, and I still do, I choose the intern. And people say, what the heck are you choosing the interns for? And I said, look around the newsroom. This entire newsroom is populated by former interns, <laughs> which is a good thing. So if you choose the interns, you are choosing the next generation of CNN journalists. There is sure. no job I more find. important than doing that. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about business. You, you've specialized in business journalism. Is it, they say that, I mean, I worked at the New York Times for many years. They say a good reporter can write about anything or cover anything. Why business? Is that a particularly uh, passion mm -hmm. area for you? or it, was it is. It is. Uh, it's both a passion and it's a resentment against others. I bought this tie. There were dozens of ties I could have bought. So I made a business decision. Mm -hmm. Now, we can, let me ask you a question. What sure. are the most important things in life? And I mean, go to the very, 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 very basics. What are they? For me, time. Time is absolutely precious. Uh, forget it. You're on a desert island. Or you're in a community. <laughs> what is the single most important things in life? Food, companionship, water. Right. No, the companionship we don't necessarily need. It's not essential. Food. And water. Water. Clean mm. air. Arguably sex. If we're going to continue the, 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 the rest. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> so, but once you've, but after you've gone to that level of basicness, what comes after is how you earn and spend your money. Now, notice I don't say money per se. Money, money is neutral. Yeah. Money is a, a force for good, a force for evil. But how we earn our money, and thereby spend a large part of our day, how we reward ourselves by spending our money, these mm -hmm. are amongst the most important things we will do. And we can dress business news up with crypto and with this and with that. But the core of business news is how you earn and how you spend your money. And that's why I find what, what's happening at the moment fascinating, because 
inflation. Inflation is at 20, 30, 40 year highs. That is affecting people's ability Everything. To, put, yeah. to put food on the table. Never mind buy an Hermes scarf. We're talking mm-hmm. about food on the table and pay the electricity bill. If you look at countries like the UK, where electricity rates have gone up by 30, 40, 50%. And that's mm-hmm. business. That is business. And it is the intersection of business and geopolitics. I remember during, in the 1980s, I think it was, I was working at the BBC and they were getting terribly excited about the Liberal Party and the Democratic, Social Democrats merging, the Lib Dems. And they were spending hours discussing this on the, on the radio but nothing about business. And I suddenly realized you're talking about two parties that will never win the election. Versus not talking about business. Yeah. Not about business. And then more recently, I had um, a producer send me a te- an email saying, oh, Richard, all this business about this quantitative easing, I don't really understand. I don't understand it. And it, it was the way it was, the, it was the, I don't understand it. And so I wrote back and I said, well, learn about it. You think nothing, you think nothing of pontificating on Shia-Sunni Muslim relations, on Iran-Iraq, on Pashtun and this and that, because these are considered to be foreign affairs. Important thing. (laughs) Very important. People go to big institutions to discuss these things. But the moment you talk about money, the moment you say QE, interest rates, even though it's going to affect you and yes. your family and your community and your country in a way that Iran, Iraq, Sunni, Muslim militia is not going to affect you. Right. Because there's a perception. It's what John Burt, the former director general of the BBC, called the bias against understanding. It's okay. <laughs> to say, oh, I don't understand that market business. Oh, I don't understand interest rates. Oh, no, no, no. I don't understand quantitative easing, printing money. This inflation, I don't understand it, the supply chain. No, 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 I don't understand it. But you'll think nothing, if you're a foreign affairs specialist, of almost getting off at the thought of the, I mean, you know, I guarantee you there will be a billion words written about Nancy Pelosi arriving in Taiwan Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And it's an important story. But how's China going to retaliate? Well, it might retaliate militarily, but it's likely unlikely to be major. Much more business. Economic yeah. business. Yeah. How did Donald yeah. Trump go against China? He went for trade. Why are we most concerned about China's shutdown or even China's reopening because of its effect on global supply chain issues? Yeah. That's Absolutely. why I get cross, angry resentful uh, people who think it's very cool to say oh i do that boring business well you have done a great job a service to your viewers and educating them and taking them along on this journey demystifying at times tell me why broadcast journalism i think i know the answer versus print journalism i mean you were made for television you've got this well, I don't know, I but think... is that it or do you prefer writing as much or oh, i still love to be seen in print i read an article for the sunday times this weekend and i and i was delighted I mean, it's, it's real it's real journalism there it is in paper you can be fishing chips <laughs> the next morning um but there's something lovely about broadcast there is something really lovely about looking into the camera and saying since you went to bed last night this has happened 
And I'm going to tell you what has happened and why I think it matters. You may disagree, but you'll at least be informed. And there's an intimacy in this relationship. And I think a lot of people get it wrong. I think a lot of people talk about, I'm broadcasting. No, no, I'm making a speech. I'm, I'm not talking to everyone. I'm talking to you. Yeah. And a little personal. trick I was taught. Because, you know, you imagine the audience naked and all that sort of crap. Now, just imagine you're telling a story at a dinner party. You need to be intimate enough to the people next to you, but you need to have projection sufficient to get to the other side of the table and those at either end. And if yes. you think about it like that, you'll, be, you'll get that right level of intimacy versus projection that's necessary for broadcasting. Yes, and you, you also have to be cogent and succinct, right? Because it yeah. is finite the time. Yeah. Tell me, what is... So when you uh, when you think about it, how has in your career, how has broadcast journalism evolved? I mean, it's busier than ever. Now you have to probably tweet and post and do all kinds of social stuff. But well, when it, I was coming what are some of the trends you've noticed? Yeah. 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 First of all, there's a lot more of it. Um, the sheer amount. So when I started, you know, radio and television was known as bimedia. You did both. It was a terrible policy, terrible policy, because whilst it is a justifiable policy to say where you where it makes sense, you do both or you cooperate. There was a philosophy that said you had to do both. And the truth is, there are some people are better at radio and some people are better at television. So what you aim to do is you aim to merge the two where it makes sense. Now we've got digital and the digital platforms and the significance of people getting their media and their news on digital platforms. But what I don't understand, and I still do not understand, is why people quote and believe crappy sources. Yeah. I'm talking about those Facebook pages that will tell you. Oh, yeah. And, oh, my great auntie Smythe saw this and she says this has happened. Look, I don't care whether you re-watch CNN. I mean, obviously, I prefer you to watch CNN. Look at CNN.com, BBCnews.com, Sky.com, Fox.com. I don't care. We're all going to tell you what has happened. How many people died? Did the bomb go off? Mm -hmm. Who you then want to read further, commentary, opinion, will depend where your political or your libertarian or your, sure. your views are. But if I'm in a hotel room and I can't get CNN, I don't cry. I watch whoever's there. Al Jazeera, sure. fine. Their, their programs are excellent. Spend a fortune. Uh, France, yeah. Catholic, for France 24. And, but what I won't do is just go to any old crap. Yeah. But you know, just this very morning, I heard on NPR that people are pulling away from news more than ever. So what do you attribute that to? Do you think it's just that people are just tired and weary after COVID and everything? Or is it just too much choice so they just tune it all out or are they distracted by more fun and entertainment all, any theories all the above it's all the above yeah it's all the above remember you over the last 15 years you've gone from basically having a limited amount of news on a couple of news channels to mm -hmm. through the phone and the tablet to the access to news 24 7 and not just news 24 7 but that the news will ping you 24 7 the updates will ping you Oh, yeah. Breaking news will ping you. So yeah. unless you are in the business, unless you are attuned to it, 
you can feel overwhelmed very quickly. Now, if you look at the last 20 years, so the great financial crisis hits in 2008, 2009. So that's nearly 14 years where we've basically been in crisis mode of some description. The great fear of the great financial crisis was that the ATMs would stop working. I'm talking about at the height of the debt crisis and the leverage buyout in the 2008, 2009. I remember a government, I remember a central bank and a, gov- a finance minister saying to me, Richard, what I'm really scared of is somebody putting their card in a machine and it's saying not today. The, we saw a bit of a panic at a couple of building societies and a couple of banks, but they were p- perfectly contained by a banking system that was able. Now, the next thing I think is also uh, the existential crisis of COVID. We have oh, we've got Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan. You've got ongoing COVID. You've got war in Ukraine with all that. As a result of which, as a result of the policies of the last 20 years, 10, 15, 20 years, we've now got inflation like we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And this is before you add in all the other uh, related crises. These are major things for us all to take on board. Ladies and gentlemen, again today, we're thrilled to have Richard Quest on, the host of Quest Means Business on CNN. Uh, Richard, can you talk about the leadership in the business community more specifically on this show we like to look at the role of business in society and i wonder what are you seeing in response to these crises whether it's covid or george floyd and social justice movements what's what's going on in here there are two types of ceo there's the real ceo there's the, there's the ceo who is a true leader and there's a ceo who's a bureaucrat who managed to get to the top why because the leader will say what they think. And I'm going to give you only one example because there are so Please. many examples, but I'm going to give you one. It's obviously Jamie Dimon of, of JP Morgan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. He is the CEO. He may say something stupid as he has in the past, but he is the CEO. And when he speaks, he speaks as the CEO. You're going to, you can disagree with him viciously. And then you have other CEOs who are scared of their own shadow. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you when you really notice it. You notice it when you ask them a difficult question. Because do they just look at it and say, well, I don't think I get, I'm not going to take that. I'm not, I'm not answering that for these reasons. Or, or this is, I don't think it's appropriate for me. Or they'll give you a wishy-washy answer. Or they'll say what they really think. No, I'm Richard Edelman of Edelman PI. It's an extremely good example of a CEO who is not afraid to say what he believes is the right way forward. It's a straightforward question. Yeah. And the problem is the average tenor of a CEO is what, two and a half, three and a half years? They are scared of their own shadow in many cases. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. not true leaders, but you don't want a dictator either. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm smiling because the very first guest I ever had on the show, we're in our seventh season now, two years ago, was Joe Evangelisti, who you probably know. He's been the chief communications officer for Jamie Dimon for a couple right. of decades now. And he is not... Jamie's front man. Jamie is that leader that you described. Mm. Joe is just there to play the supporting role and, and help. So uh, I share your observation there. Look, when I'm in Davos, you can spot the CEOs because we interview lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of them. But there was an interview that required me to ask the CEO of his policy concerning, it was a social policy. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, concerning abortion, the abortion decision mm-hmm. just had just been leaked. And the PR woman looked horrified. We're here to talk about this. We're here to talk about this. Yeah. Yeah, he's the CEO of a major 
company because it employs yeah. hundred thousand people. But yes, but that's not on our agenda today. No, it's not. Many of them are women. But, yeah, but it's yeah. on America's agenda today. Yeah. And and then you get I get cross with them because I say I understand it's not on your agenda, and I'll ask you about what you've got to want to talk about. But this is a man who earns millions of dollars to lead hundreds of thousands of people who needs to answer the question, what's the policy going to be? What I didn't say, which was unspoken, is, and if you didn't brief him this morning that this was going to be asked, then you failed in your job. So stick with that, Richard. Um, I sometimes joke and call it alphabet soup. You've got ESG, environment, social governance. You've got uh, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. You've got BLM, Black Lives Matter. What do you, as you look at the leadership in business, uh, the private sector today, what do you see, what do you make of it? How are they stewarding their brands vis-a-vis -vis these topics? Is it uh, lip There's service? Two ways. Some... There's two ways they're looking at it. The first is the political way. Mm -hmm. Do I need to be involved in this? Do I need to have this? Is this something I've got to do? But there's a more important factor that's, in, that's at play here. This is something that I don't think that the organizations and the NGOs fully play into, mm -hmm. or some do. The GLAD does on, on yeah. LGBTQ and media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You need employees. Employees will not work for you if you are sexist, misogynist, homophobic, if your company is not welcoming. Oh, you'll always get somebody to work for you. You know, if you have a free party, somebody will turn up, but you won't get the people you want. You won't get the best yeah. talent. You won't, and you might get one or two, but you will not. That's why Lord Brown, Lord John Brown, former BP guy who came out, he was outed. He was outed, yes, famously. In his book, the, 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 the Glass Closet, he says, the reason you do it is not because it's the right thing to do, although that is a good reason to do it. It's because it's the right business thing to do. Yeah. And they do I remember yep. when I came out, I came out several times. I came out obviously to my family. I came out to this, that, the other. But I'd never, and I'd been out, I'd been out as a, as a, as a gay man for years. But I'd never talked about it publicly. And my reluctance to do so was born out of the 1980s. It wasn't to do with shame. It wasn't to do with any of those sort of issues. It was to do with much more basic things. You didn't discuss, you didn't bring those aspects into your work because of conflict of interests, because of, mm -hmm. if, if, you know, you, you were neutral. That's been a huge change in journalism. Huge change in business in general. Yeah. yeah. I used to say, how can I cover a gay story if I'm a gay man? People today say, well, you have a greater empathy of the story. You have a greater understanding of the... I'll give you an example now. The monkeypox, which seems mm -hmm. to be afflicting at the moment those people, uh, men who have sex with men. Correct. One doctor has said, well, maybe they should stop having such promiscuous sex. That will be a very quick and easy way to stem the tide. And yeah. he's been roundly criticised for this. But, it, but as a as a gay man who's also a journalist, can I, how do I cover something like that objectively? And so I yes. always took the view, I always took the view, and I have a test on this, but I always took the view is it's best not to do it. It's best 
not to do it because you don't want the viewer to say, oh, I want to look mm-hmm. at that report again. Now I know he's. But the reality is times have changed. and Now we do wear our personalities yeah. on our sleeves. And yeah. so I came out. But the first time I did it, that's on air. It was Pride Weekend. We'd had John Brown on in the show earlier in the week. And I, I rambled on. I did a profitable moment at the end, as I always do. And I rambled on about how we do our best work, when we can be ourselves, when we do this, when we do that. And it's all about being open, honest, this and that. I never actually said I'm gay and blah, blah, blah. I never actually put it. I, I, I mean, if you, if you read between the lines, you saw where I was going. And I went home and I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, you really dropped that. You absolutely up. So over the weekend, I wrote it again and I sent it to the boss. I said, Tony, I really made a mistake. You know, I mean, not to make a mistake. I let myself down. This is what I intend to say. This is what I'd like to say on Monday. And it basically is this. I'm gay. I've had this reasons, blah, blah. And the boss just wrote back to me and he said, this is what I was hoping you would say on Friday. <laughs> fact that I am talking about this to you is really important to me. My ideal scenario is a kid saying to their parents, the mum or dad, hey, you know he's gay. And the father or the mother saying, oh, you don't care about that. I want you to hear what he's saying about the dollar. Yeah. I'm much more interested about his views on, on interest rates or where the there market's going. Go. No, no, no. Who cares what he does? What, what he, he does. Uh, just so tell me then. You mentioned uh, being gay, as am I. I'm happily married. I know you're married. How do you how do you find the work life balance? I mean, is your spouse in a similar business? Do you? Yeah, yeah. He works for CNN. And how? I mean, how do you how do you find time for yourselves? That that's not a. I mean, that's an issue for everybody who's in television. Sure. It's not a, but your ways might be an inspiration for others. So I wonder how you do it. Speaking about being gay, that reminds me that you're married. And I wonder how you find work-life balance, both with your marriage, but even your own time. You have this boundless energy that it's, it's I palpable. It. I don't have it. Oh, really? Tell us about the downside. You know, I heard it somebody say once, I recognize, this is moderation. I recognize yeah. moderation as I swing past it between extremes. And that's me. Yeah. And I'm very lucky. Chris, my husband, is in the business. Every time I go to apologize for not being able to there, or he says, I knew what I was getting myself into. I knew. I knew. I think you make the best effort you can. I think yeah. you do what you can. But the reality is, Debbie, the reality is you can't take the sort of money TV presenters earn and the pressures that go with it. And you can't not do the job. Sure, and, you have to deliver. And that means, it's when, like when somebody asks you for a photograph, you know, provided they're not being at the wrong moment or whatever, you think to yourself, well, the time to worry is when they stop asking. Yeah, completely. You know, these are, so I, where I think I have to do much better is is the work-life balance and i've just had a month sabbatical which we get at cnn after 20 odd years and i didn't have to take it but i was yeah. determined to take it i was determined yeah because there's another thing i'm going to be 60 i'm 60 this year so i'm 60 we're the same age yeah same well yeah. then you're also thinking what next yeah you're thinking what next and yeah. i have a theory on this again concerning people might find interesting being, I'm tired of people telling me it's only a number. 
20 to 30, out of university, first job, money, yay! 30 to 40, getting on the ladder, got an idea. You're starting to get a bit of senior, you know, good projects. You know what you're doing. You may have changed jobs once or twice. 40 to 50, you know now if you're going to make it. And if you're not going to make it, you're going to make that 40-year-old change or you're going to continue to push harder. 50 to 60, you're now comfortable in what you're doing. You're working at a particular level. You're earning money. You're so. But all of that can take place in one or two companies. And all of that doesn't necessarily predicate a change in job. The one thing you know about between 60 and 70 as an employee is that it's probable your life's going to change dramatically. Yeah. And that's probably your last decade of work. Two questions uh, in particular. One is just reading the tea leaves for the business in the next year or two. And the second is just your final words of advice to young or disrupted senior people in their careers. So want to prognosticate it all on the global economy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be very difficult. Are we we tanking along the bottom of the market? Probably, possibly. We know what's coming. And everything I say here is absent an exogenous event. We know what is coming. Higher interest rates, which will slow down the economy, which will firm the base, by which time countries like Germany, Italy and others will have weaned themselves sufficiently off Russian oil that we can enjoy reasonable growth two, three, four years down the road. So, you know, is it now a time to buy? Are we at that particular point? Doesn't really matter. We know where we are in the system at the moment. The advice to the young, very few things you do are irreversible, irrevocable, and irreplaceable. Yes. Put a stake in the ground and move and keep moving and do yes. it. Yes. That's great. For those older, reflect. I've spent the last six months, not just in my sabbatical, but also realizing that there is good. I've seen too many of my colleagues get to 60, 65, get kicked out of the company. Either their face didn't fit, the contract wasn't renewed, and all of a sudden they were out of a job. Yeah. And that by, and remember, the problem is for people like you, me, and many people watching this, love it or not, you are defined by your job. Love it or not, you have invested more in your work life than was honest, decent, or proper. Therefore, if this rug is suddenly pulled out from underneath you, even if it's a nice, luxurious carpet and you have a soft feather landing, if you have not reflected on what that's going to mean, and if you're not in the sort of person who will go to therapy to begin with, then you're in for a very bad time. You're in for a really difficult time. (laughs) Because, well said, my friend. Because somebody is about to tell you that the world is flat after all. Yes. <laughs> and you've heard it from Richard Quest. Ladies and gentlemen, my thanks to Richard Quest, host of Quest Means Business and numerous other programs on CNN. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at tusnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.